Maybe that's your heart. You feel like you're looking for something more. You know, we can go through our life and think to ourselves, well, what we do at a job, making more money, building relationships, even in church, and become very disappointed and very disillusioned with what's going on. And so next week, we're going to be looking at a series of messages that I think is going to kind of set us up for maybe uh, the year or years to come for something more. And we'll be talking about that a little bit more later. But in the context of this message, I'd like to intro that series to you this morning uh, is in the book of Nehemiah. And I, I want to look at this in the context of our vision for the coming year. And so the title of the message is A Prelude to a Vision. Because oftentimes when we're looking at a vision, we're, we're talking about we start at the wrong place. You ever wondered why so many people cast vision, maybe, in a, in a, maybe the business or your school or even a church, and, and people don't buy into it. They don't understand what the premise is, what the motive behind it all is. And I think we're starting sometimes at the wrong place. And then other people <clears throat> would tell you that vision is kind of overstated. It's more of a business uh, type thing, corporate thing, than it is a church thing. And others are saying, how come... Every time some church casts a vision, it's always about the pastor being great, the church being great, and the church prospering and, and all that. It's always kind of the same thing. And then when churches hire a company, it seems like we all have the same vision statement involved. And so we want to look at it a little bit more in depth because not only does a church need a vision, but you need a vision for your own life. Because without it, you really don't have the hope. You don't, you're not really looking toward the future. And so we're going to be looking at that prelude to a vision. I want to look at really the process of really what, it, what should take place in, in vision casting. And then we're talking about that prerequisite to it, and then finally the product of it. So I want us to look at the book of Nehemiah, because in this book, I'm going to be looking at the message a little bit different way. Normally, I'll take a passage and go verse by verse through it. But I want to tell you the story of Nehemiah, and then we're going to be looking at key verses in this book that would really highlight that story. Well, Nehemiah was a cupbearer of the king. Now, that was an important job because you tasted all the food and drank all the beverages to try them out before the king could drink them because if there were poison in them, so you had an important job and a very dangerous one. Well, the reason he was the cupbearer of the king, he was a slave. And uh, if you remember, I'll give you a little background of the story. <clears throat> Many of you remember books like the book of Daniel and other prophetical books. Well, just to give you a little background, the book of Genesis starts history. The book of Nehemiah really ends history as far as the Old Testament is concerned. So we're only a few hundred years away from John the Baptist being on the scene and then, of course, Jesus coming on the scene as well. We're very, at the very end of the Old Testament. Everything else in the Old Testament, Proverbs, Psalms, the prof prophetical books like Isaiah and uh, other books like that are fed into the historical timeline between Genesis and Nehemiah, many of them coming uh, in the last few hundred years. And so at the end of the book of Nehemiah, what has happened is that many of the Jewish people have gone back into Jerusalem. And the reason they could do that is because the original guy that overtook Judah, the nation of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, was gone from the scene. Persia had taken over from Babylon, and they were much kinder to the Israelites and allowed many of them to go back to Jerusalem. Well, Nehemiah is hearing all these reports. He says, oh, the walls are broken down, 
And he wept and he cried and he was so burdened because the walls of a city were so important to the city. Uh, back then, they didn't have airplanes, helicopters, bombs being uh, flown over places. And so the walls of the city were very vitally important to the protection of the city. If you remember back in the time of where the Israelites came into Jericho, and they said, they came back with a report, oh, there's walled cities. We can't possibly go in there. And so that was the idea. The, the walls of the city protected the city. And now the city was in rubbles. The walls were in rubbles. Ezra has come back into town. He built the temple. They were having worship, but they were, there was no protection from the enemy. And uh, now Nehemiah has this burden in his heart to go back to Jerusalem. He approaches the king, and, you know, he could be beheaded for that. He could be killed. But he approaches the king, and the king said, look, not only will I do that for you and allow you to go back, I'm going to send the building materials with you. And so it was a great miracle, a great answer to prayer. And so Nehemiah takes off and he begins to take this journey. Well, he goes and surveys the wall. And the Bible says in chapter 2 that very few people, really nobody knew about it. Then he took the townspeople with him the next day. Verse 17, <clears throat> then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. People are laughing at him. People are saying, you know, you're the, the kingdom of God and you're the people, chosen people of God. God won't even protect you. Verse 18, I told them of the hand of my God that had been, uh, been upon me for good and also for the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us arise and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now, here's what happened. Nehemiah got the vision. He goes out. He explains the vision. He shows them, draws them a picture of what's going on. And that's what a vision is. You're drawing a picture of what should be. They got the vision and said, let's arise and build. They would get all kinds of opposition, all kinds of threats. They had to have a shovel in one hand and a weapon in the other because the enemy was coming, because they, the enemy did not want them to rebuild the wall. So it was a lot of great sacrifice. What would cause a group of people to catch that kind of vision. Why is it, for example, in our churches sometimes, vision is cast and it's sort of like it rolls off your back. You just don't really get it or you, 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 know, you don't want what the church's, church is wanting. Why is that? Because we start at the wrong place. So I want us to look at these three things. First of all, we look at the process of a vision. Uh, it didn't start... If Nehemiah started with the vision, then he would have been starting at the wrong place. But the people of Jerusalem were coming back to Jerusalem, and there was an understanding with all of them. And that is God had a plan for Israel's life. Jeremiah tells us in 29.11, he says, The plans I have for you is to give you a future. He says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity or evil, to give you a future and a hope. God had a plan for Israel's life. They were supposed to be glorifying God in order to be the nation that would show the mercy and the grace of God to all the other nations. Now, not only have they been conquered, but now they've come back and people are noticing, huh? God seems, their God seems to be blessing them. They're building this temple. But they were still laughing at them because they had... Uh, no walls, it was just all rubble, and they needed to be rebuilt, and no one was doing anything about it. So I want you to notice the process that happened. The Israelites knew their purpose 
long before they knew the vision. You start with a purpose. It's been said by, I think, Ravi Zacharias, purpose is the peg of which all of life hangs. So what is the purpose of your life? Complete this sentence. I'm here to glorify God by... You say, well, I'm, I'm not sure. Well, without the purpose, you really can't get the vision for your life. Why is that? Well, you have the purpose. You have the purpose. Now there comes the obstacles, the problems, the problems of life. I mean, how many of you can say you know someone that has never had a problem in life? Anybody here? No, because we're, we're coming from a problem. We're in a problem, or we're looking forward to a problem, right? Well, I shouldn't say problem. I guess I should say challenges. You know, problems, I guess, is not PC. Challenges of life. You know, I found out this week, I'm not fat and I'm not ugly. I'm both horizontally and aesthetically challenged. And so, you know, it made me feel so much better uh, to know that. But here we find the purpose. Well, there's always, if there's a purpose, there's always a problem, an obstacle in reaching that purpose. Let me give you a good example. God wants to have a relationship with you. He created Adam and Eve for that very purpose. But an obstacle, a problem got in the way. It's called sin. So what did he do? He had a vision that Jesus Christ would come and die on the cross for our sins, that we might go back and uh, complete our original purpose, and that is to glorify God and have a relationship with him. So there you go. There's, there's the problem. There's the, the, or rather the purpose. Then there's the problem. And then finally, there is the solution. And your vision is is the solution to the problem. And so we look and we say, well, what's our purpose then as a church? Well, our church purpose is reaching people for Jesus Christ, uh, teaching them to observe all things, training them up, in other words, in righteousness. In fact, here's the vision of every church. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that is identifying with Christ, and then teaching them to observe all I've commanded you to grow them up, to have spiritual maturity in their life. Now, that's our, our vision to do that. We have obstacles, of course. There is a reluctance, for example, to share Christ uh, in, these, in these times, a reluctance to have confrontation. You don't want interf- to interrupt anyone's life. You don't want to interfere with their life. You don't want to be abrupt with them in any way. So there's a reluctance to do that. There's, there's not that maybe burden there that maybe um, you used to have when you were first a Christian. Paul said this, For I wish that I myself would be accursed and cut off for the sake of my brothers. He said in that passage, I'd rather myself go to hell if the, my brethren, the Jewish nation, could be saved. And he's not talking about a military salvation. He's talking about coming to know Christ. There's no more, another problem, there's no more cultural Christianity. He <clears throat> said, well, that's not a problem, that's good. I mean, how was the church back in the 1950s, 1960s with these people just coming to church because it was just something they did? You know, wife made them come, you know, as the, as the video showed just a few moments ago. Well, it was, it was not good, but it had its, its advantages. If you were a part of cultural Christianity, you may have bumped in to a good church that really preached the gospel. Now, what happened? Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, you were involved in hearing the Bible being preached. Sometimes it was maybe practical. Sometimes it was doctrinal. A lot of times it was just maybe about salvation. But you got it. Now, if you don't ha- come to church at all, 
You don't get it. There's an obstacle there. So there's an obstacle of our reluctance, an obstacle of no, no longer do we have Christianity. And then there's the promises of the world that are just simply not kept. But that's always been an obstacle. It's always been a problem. In other words, the world says, if you just do this, you're going to be successful, and that's going to make you happy. If you do this, you're going to be famous. That's going to make you happy. If you do this, you're going to have enough money, and that's going to make you happy. Or as uh, a generation, as the last couple of generations have come up, hey, if you believe in yourself, you can do anything. I remember coaching a little league team with my kids, and parents yelling out this, and this little fellow, I mean, he wasn't a very good ball player, honestly. I mean, when you set the ball up on a tee and, and you can't really hit the ball, you're probably not going to make the majors one day. But he was trying, all right? And he had a good personality, great kid, everybody liked. But they'd yell out, just believe in yourself, just believe in yourself. And he, would, he hit the ball. I remember being on first base. He's standing there so proud. He said, I believed in myself. I believed in five years old. I believed in myself. And uh, I thought to myself, wow, is he going to be disappointed in life when he finds out you can't do everything you want to do just because you believe in yourself? And we're finding that to be true, don't we? You know, things like that are based on your talent. They're based on your, your past experiences. They're based on maybe your spiritual gifts if you're a believer in Christ. Based on opportunity that God gives you in life. You need to believe in God, not just believe in yourself. Even though a bad self-esteem is bad, self-esteem won't get you where you want to go. So the world's disappointing. I wonder how many things were happening out in the world and the violence that's happening in the world because people are so frustrated. Look, I thought if I did this, I was owed something or I was, was going to get something. And I find out the world's just not as pliable as my family. And so we have that obstacle. And then the promises of the church. Oh, my goodness, for years, I mean, pastors have stood up and said, hey, if you do this, you're going to be rich. If you do this, you're going to live, lead the abundant life, and you're never going to. If you just receive Christ, you will never have another problem as long as you live. You say, I've never heard that. But you've heard something like it, haven't you? Now, Jesus said, I come that you might have life. You might have it more abundantly, but there's a way to get there. There's a way to, to maneuver there. But there's obstacles involved. And so we have a purpose. We have, <coughs> excuse me. We have the obstacles to overcome. The vision then is overcoming the obstacles, the problems, so you can get back to your purpose and accomplish the purpose of which God has called you to do. Vision is solution to the problem. My, uh, I, you know, I hesitate to share anything like this, but a lot of you are going through kind of the same thing with, with maybe your parents or grandparents. But my dad is 90 years old and he has Alzheimer's. And um, our purpose, my sister and I, our purpose, my family, is to make sure my dad is provided for with the money that he has left in order to uh, be able to, to live right. But the problem is, is that we have someone in the family who keeps coming back and getting the money. And even when he doesn't remember it. You say, well, that's, that's really illegal. Well, I guess it is, really, but you know, family members and all that. And so uh, there's a problem there. So the vision then is to overcome the problem so we can come back to the purpose and provide for my dad. What is the, the vision? The vision would be for one of us to become conservator of his bank account. So he can't spend the money that we would have to, to write all the checks. 
We did that. We went through all the legal stuff. Been going back and forth to Georgia to do that for about a year. And therefore, we, overcome, we overcame that problem in order to get back to the purpose. Now, the problem is this. You can say, oh, I want a vision of my life. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to be great. And I'm going to be wonderful. Listen, if, if every church would ask themselves, what is our purpose? And then what is our problem? We would never have visions that were so great and grand, grand that it, it really glorified anybody but Jesus Christ. And the same would be with your life. You would know what, what to do. Because what you have to do is overcome your problems so you can get back to your purpose. And so, secondly, in our outline, the preparation of the vision. I want us to look back in verses uh, 10 and 11, or let's start in verse 8. I don't want us to see, again, the burden here that Nehemiah has because of their purpose. He says, remember the word that you commanded. He's talking to God here. Your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Now, God made a promise to the nation of Israel, but there were conditions to it. But if you return to me and give my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place which he was doing then, bring them to a place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed from a great power and a strong hand. Way back in the book of Genesis, God called a man by the name of Abram. He chose him. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Everybody born through you is going to be blessed. They were eventually called the nation of Israel. And he says, I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. I'm going to be a blessing to you. You're going to be a blessing to me. It was a covenant. There was a promise there. There was a purpose that they would, first of all, as we find out in the Bible, they would bring the Bible. They'd write the Bible. They would preserve the Bible. They would show us the grace and mercy of God. And they had a purpose. Therefore, the people began to really understand the vision through the purpose. And so purpose, how do, how do you get that? How do you know? Here's the thing. Your purpose grows through your experiences of life. It does. People wonder, well, okay, in fact, the book by Simon Sinek, uh, maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong, start with why. Why? And he says that past experiences really do point you to your purpose in life. And I look at my own life and I wonder, okay, why do I, as not every church is evangelistic as our church, so why do I feel like I need to be evangelistic and, and share the gospel and I need to make sure everybody understands the gospel when they come into our church? Why is that? Well, did you know I was 12 years old, going to church all my life, 12 years old before I understood the gospel. At no time did anyone ever sit down with me and say, have you ever been saved until I was 19 years old? I got saved when I was 12, or rather 16 years old, but it was all by myself, just listening to the sermons and, and the Bible studies. I had no idea about a simple plan of salvation. I didn't know. 16 years old, I received Christ. 19 years old, at that point, I had not grown much because nobody had ever sat down with me and said, you know, you really need to read the Bible. You really need to pray. So I look at my past experiences, and I realize the reason I am so burdened for young Christians to grow in their faith, and then before that even to be saved, is my past experiences. You look at a lot of the millennial churches today. You know, people are kind of critical and sometimes, and 
And there was a book even written by a guy recently, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Life. You say, man, what's that book about? I don't know. I hadn't read it. I just say that's the, that's the title. <laughs> I hadn't read it yet, okay? But it was by a prominent pastor, a good pastor, and he, he's written a book. And now the whole generation is saying, look, you know, you, you pray this prayer to invite Jesus into your heart. It doesn't work. Right? Evidently, it doesn't. But let me tell you my past. I grew up in a church and in a time where if you wanted to be saved, what would you do? You would come forward in a service. Well, that's what I did. At 16 years old, I received Christ in my life. A couple of months later, I walked forward in a church. I was sat down right in the front pew. I filled out a card, and that was it. I said, well, that's not it. My goodness, you've got to make it more personal than that. I was in the, uh, a church, Prince Avenue Baptist Church, Athens, Georgia. First time, my pastor ended the message, what about you? No, he didn't say that, no, I'm sure. But <clears throat> he said, every head bowed, every eye closed. That's how I did that. He said, oh, everybody wants to receive Christ, pray this prayer with me. And they did that. And then people came forward. And I'm, oh, that's it. You need to, you, you know, the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that's what we need to do. And boy, we, I was, grew up during the Jesus movement. And a lot of people were getting saved. Their lives were being changed. The problem that we're having today, one of our biggest problems, we've lost the wonder of it all. We don't see life change like we used to see. I remember um, as a student at the University of Georgia, um, there was a guy on the football team named Chuck Harris. And uh, Chuck was the, the most, uh, one of the most disruptive drinkers, drug users, and I you know, can't use the word, but Johnny Hunt used the word a hellion, whatever that means, that's him. And everybody knew that on the whole team. Now, here was a team that admittedly only had one Christian on the whole team. The whole team. Offensive lineman. Chuck goes off for the summer. He even tells a story that summer how uh, he got so drunk they just threw him in the back of a truck and tied a rope onto him. And when he began to roll, as they began to move, he dropped out on the pavement. And they were going down the road 50 miles an hour, him bouncing on the pavement. Pulled two handfuls of gravel out of his back. Well, he went to his high school coach, heard something had happened to his high school coach. He said, what's happened to you? He said, I received Jesus in my heart. It's changed my life. His coach was a bad, you know, was a rough, not a bad guy, but a rough, rough individual himself before that. He shared Christ with Chuck. Chuck received Christ, got discipled by his high school coach. When he went back to the University of Georgia, he put his luggage down. It was, I guess it was a Sunday. And... Um, Slept that night, Saturday night, in a room by himself, no roommate there yet. Grabbed his Bible on Sunday morning to go find a church. His roommate at that very moment was coming in with his luggage. He saw Chuck's Bible, dropped his luggage, and died laughing on the floor. Literally, just fell on the floor laughing because he thought it was a joke. He, he was just joking, making light of the Christians again. He said, no, I'm serious. I received Christ. Nobody believed it, but they soon believed it. His life was changed. From that kind of revival, and it was, again, during the 70s and the Jesus movement, we're seeing Ray Goff, who eventually became the coach at the University of Georgia in the 90s, receive Christ. We saw a guy named Dickie Clark, who is now um, high up in FCA. Another young man that got saved, started a church in Atlanta. 
Another young man that got saved was his associate pastor for years and is still in the ministry today. All these things going on. Revival, where, where's that today? Where is the high school football player that suddenly receives Christ into his life and everything's changed? Where is the young lady maybe in college who is way off the path, receives Christ, and wow, I want to know what's going on in your life. The problem is the reason why I believe in community service. We've got something coming up this, this fall that I think that is going to be really big. I hope if it comes through, I'm not ready to share it yet. I believe in all that. But the reason why we have people coming to us and say, what are you doing for the community? What are you doing? What about the 5,000 people who have been baptized? That's the greatest thing that we can do for a community. Why don't people recognize that? Because they don't see the wonder in their life. So as we look at this, it's based on past experience. What's your purpose? The cross-life purpose, lead people to Christ. Now, the, problem with, the only problem with the witness tree is action. That's good. But it's not action with the motive behind it. The motive behind it is to reach people for Christ because we love people because we love Jesus. We have to love Jesus, really, and fall in love with him before we're going to love people enough to go out there with resources, leadership, and reach people for Jesus Christ. Our purpose is to build lives that matter by inspiring you to love Jesus. Now, for years, I have uh, preached probably more on trusting Christ, going over why we have different things going on in our life and how adversity strikes and how we respond to it. Probably more than that than I, than I preached on the love of God. But without loving him, all of these things become kind of a ritual, become a legalistic type of thing, become rules. But when I love someone, taking care of them, helping them is not a rule. Now, our church doesn't have to be like every other church, and every other church doesn't have to be like our church. That's the reason you have different churches. Otherwise, everybody was the same. You do realize that we'd only need one. And so what about us? Where, where is our niche? I think that's a cool word now. Well, it may not be with the coolest preacher. Other churches may have a cooler preacher. Others may have, if they have a better band, I haven't heard it. Okay, let me just say that. But they may not shine a light in your face all during the last song. I'm just throwing that out. Because <laughs> I know I'm going to hear about it. I know I'm going to hear about it. I saw it. I saw it. Just to let you know. May not have the coolest guy in the pulpit. Maybe even have uh, certainly better preachers. So where do we fit? Because of our size and resources. We have resources. We have leadership. We ought to be able to do things that maybe other churches cannot do or inspire other churches to come and help us. But we're not going to do that until we first get back to our purpose. And that is to have a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything go, grows out of that. Jesus is the something, something more. Amen. Jesus is the something more. And you can't lose sight of that. Sinek in his book talks about Apple and how Apple got started because uh, two guys decided that everybody, the corporate world, had all the computers, and they were using that against the common man. And so Apple started with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak um, to, um, 
to build a computer that everybody can use so we can get back at the corporate world. Man, that's, they only have about, what, 3% of the computers in the world now? But I guarantee you there's some loyal Apple users. I have an iPhone myself. Loyal Apple users. Because it all started out, hey, yeah, yeah, we're just the common guy. We don't know how to use computers like other people. We're going to have something that we can use. They lost that. When Steve Jobs, the first time around, he lost his job. The Pepsi-Cola guy took over in the 90s. They lost that. It's just the bottom line at that point. And when they lost that, they lost their following because they lost the why. They were still doing the what. They were still experimenting with the how. And we ought to always do that with churches. Do the what and the how, but they lost the why. We don't need to lose the why. Why are we doing it? Why do you invite people to church? Not to fill up a building. If that's what you're doing, I, I can understand how you would not get it. You do that, you invite them because this is the church that can grow them up in Christ. Teach them to love God. Teach them to trust God. We're going to have a new foundations class starting this fall. I'll be teaching through videotape on just the basics to the Christian life because I've got, a, I've got a burden for that young Christian who comes in and gets saved and goes directly to a small group. And what do they study? The book of Ezra or something. They have no idea what's going on. How, how do you hit the ground running when you're, you feel like you're a little bit behind? This fall, we're going to start this new series of messages. And for some of you doing an outline, this is the practice, by the way. Uh, just thought I'd throw that out. Practice of a vision. Um, we're going to have um, a series called For Something More. Hopefully, it's going to set up something more for the future. But there's, a, there's just so many of your friends that are wondering, look, I've been to church. I've had the great worship. I've had the relevant preaching. When is Jesus going to click for me? Where is all this coming from? You know, rules, 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 rules. Where, where do the rules come from? Where does the Bible come from? I want something more. So we're going to be looking at more than a religion. It's a relationship. It's more than the mediocrity. It's a life of wonder. It's a life of miracles. More than forgiveness. It's a life beyond regret. Everybody has regrets. I read a book where it said, if you don't have the, the characteristic of a person with no regrets is a sociopath. So everybody has them. How do you deal with that? It's a life beyond decision. It's a life of growth and other messages as well. Sunday night, starting September 9th. We've had these Sunday night series before. This year, we're going to do a revival series where other preachers from around the state come in and preach for us. For the best preachers in the state are going to come in on Sunday night, and they're going to ask themselves the question, why do I love Jesus? And they're going to preach on it. And at the end of that, we're going to have a global impact conference. We call it GIC. And this is the reason why it's so important. This is, this is a real catalyst to, to call us to ministry and call us to a love of Jesus. And I'll tell you why. 118 people, at least, are out in the ministry right now because of this church. They were called out of this church. And everyone that I've talked to, I've asked them what was the main thing that really called you into the ministry that we participated in. And every one of them said, the mission trips. Man, we were on the field for those short-term mission trips. We were in that third world country. We, we were involved in the ministry. We were, it forced our hand to do things we're uncomfortable with. And so, 
We're still taking mission trips, as you know. But unlike before, we were able to pay half the way for every young person to go. No church does that. I've not, I'm not, I've not found that church. But we can't do that anymore because we don't have a global impact conference. We've been able to help missionaries personally all throughout the world. Can't do that anymore. We don't have a global impact conference. And so this global impact conference, we're inviting, as we've had before, about 30 different missionary units from all over the world. They're going to come, and on Wednesday night, we're going to have a big rally. Ted Trailer uh, out of Pensacola is going to come and preach for us. We're going to have meetings all week long with these missionaries. On Friday night and Saturday night, they're going to be meeting with your small group. So missionaries are going to be meeting in a home with your small group. They're going to be here on Sunday morning. And uh, Walker Moore, who's a retiring missionary this year, who all-star ministries, taking young people all over the world, has story after story that he can tell us. He's been here three or four times before, one of our favorite preachers in the world. He's going to be here on Sunday morning. And on Sunday morning, we're going to be talking about a financial commitment our goal is $400,000, so we can do a lot of different things. But with that, we're not taking up a missionary offering at Christmas time for foreign missions. It's going to come out of that $400,000. We're not going to take up an Easter offering for our North American Mission Board for home missions because it's going to come out at the same $400,000. We're not going to take up anything for the state missions. It's going to come out of that same. So it's just one, and it's not a one-time. You can give it one gift. You can make a commitment over the course of the time. And it's going to all go to missions. But here's something else we're going to do. And uh, talk to the deacons about it. They're excited about it. Other church leaders as well. Some of you here are involved with Compassion International. Raise your hand if you are. You're supporting a child. Look, look all around you. You've been to a concert where they've made the call to support this child. $38 a month. And what does that give them? Gives them a couple of great meals during the week. It gives them Bible teaching, not just about salvation, but the whole Bible. It teaches them etiquette, business type of etiquette, just so they can make it out in the world. And believe me, I, I've been there. They invited me to go to Peru for a trip. I saw the product there and what was coming out of those schools when the, they graduated from high school and on to college. It's unbelievable, the change in their life. But here's the thing. They don't work in any area that doesn't have a, a gospel-centered church. They don't work with them, okay? And so you go into an area and say, oh, we want to we go to this. Don't have a church there. We can't go there. They use their building, call all the people to that church, and so most of the people who would come there, their parents, everybody, begin to go to that church because that just becomes the, the center of activity in their life. Many of them get saved because of that. Most of them, in fact. I had a young man named Jimmy, and Pam and I started supporting uh, due to the Peru trip, and uh, he moved, and he moved to an area that didn't have a church, and so he's out of the program. That's sad. And so I, I talked with him when I was down there. I said, well, do any churches in America, I know they partner with you on these children, but do any of them ever partner on you starting a church? Because that's kind of what we're interested in. And so we've been talking about this for the last couple of years. And so they have right now a church, a place rather, in Haiti, where we go sometimes anyway. Haiti 
where they've already chosen the pastor, they already have the location, they already have the village, it's going to cost us one time $50,000 of that four hundred. dollars $50,000. And what they'll do, they'll bring all the, it's going to pay the pastor's salary for a few years, going to build the building that they're going to use, not only for church, but for Compassion International. And then it's going to start supporting all the children in the area until they can go to different churches like ours, different concerts that have like we do, and get personal sponsors. They're going to get them started. It's going to cost us $50,000 to do that. I'm telling you, is that not a worthy project for a large church or what? Amen. And there's going to be probably 100, 150 kids. They're going to be blessed. Their lives are going to be changed like maybe no, nothing I've ever seen done in children's lives before on the mission field. So we got all this going on, all this going on, and it's going to, what's it going to cause us to do? Well, we're going to send people out on the mission field. We're going to be able to pay some of that half. Their, they're going to come back with a changed life, more in love with Jesus than they've ever been before. What's going to be the results of all this as I close? If you love someone, you're going to put them first. So when you fall in love with Jesus more and more and more, you're going to have less struggle with putting him on the throne. Some of you right now, man, you have pictures of your kids. You have, uh, you know, I wouldn't say a wallet full. You've got a phone full of pictures of your grandkids or your kids. I know I do. My wife has a lot more than me. Pam looked at me and said, look, I got 10 million megabytes and it's already full. <laughs> you know, got all these pictures because we're proud of them. We, we want to brag on them. So it's easy easier to put Jesus and keep him on the throne. Well, if you love Jesus, you're going to serve Jesus. You love other people, you're going to serve them. You're going to have that attitude of, oh, hey, I got to go and serve again. I got to do something for my neighbor. I got to give something. I got to do something. No, it's not. Oh, I, I get to give? I get to serve? Why? Because when you fall in love with Jesus, you then fall in love with the things that he's in love with. And lastly, you're going to brag on Jesus. You're going to witness. You're going to tell people about Jesus because you are so excited about him. Just like the apostles, we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. Now, this morning, next week, we start the series. I pray that you'll invite people to come because you love them, because you want them to know the answers. But this morning, <clears throat> I want to remind you, that Jesus Christ loves you. We love him because he first loved us. What happened? God's got a purpose for our life. He wants you to have a loving relationship with God. We've got a problem, sin. But we got a solution, a vision thousands of years ago that Jesus Christ would come and die on the cross for our sins. I recall a story in um, Jesus' life. And um, a leper came to him and he said, Jesus... If you are willing, you can make me whole. And Jesus said, I am willing. And he reached out his hand and touched him, and he was made whole. Maybe you're struggling here today, and you're thinking, I'm not sure God loves me. He does. He died on the cross for your sins. But you look at him and say, are you willing? You know what that man was asking, that leper? Lord, not if you're willing. He was saying, Lord, if you love me enough... You can make me whole.
And so you reach out to Jesus today and say, Jesus, if you love me, you can make me whole. And he does love you. He loves you enough to make you whole. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, if you've never received Christ into your heart, I do want to pray that prayer with you. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you like Jesus in your heart beginning today? Pray with me right now. Lord God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for wanting a relationship with me. Of all people, you love me. I know, Lord, that I'm a sinner. But Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I accept your love. Receive your love. Receive his payment for my sin today. Help this to be the beginning of a great and wonderful, loving relationship with you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.